You like fresh fruits, fruit salad? I love it. I love it when my wife takes fresh blueberries and strawberries and raspberries and blackberries and she mixes it all together, maybe pours a little bit of cream on it. Would you like that this morning? Well, what if I mix it with dirty, infectious, open sores and I mix it all? You still want it? Probably not. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of the book of Romans and are looking at the depravity of man as identified in chapter 3. We've seen already that the faithfulness of God toward the nation Israel does not automatically allow them to escape his judgment. So as we pick up today, Pastor Brogy addresses the objection Jewish readers might have had to Paul's claim that they were unrighteous if their sin proved the righteousness of God and his ability to cleanse them. Don't miss the point that Paul wants to make here. He's saying that in spite of all of the sin in the nation of Israel, it will not change God's faithfulness one bit. So he asks, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is faithful and just in spite of the lying, wagging tongues of men. Now in verses 5 through 8, he is going to highlight another point, that the faithfulness of God towards Israel does not allow them to escape judgment. So that brings us to the third objection. What about God's righteousness? What about God's righteousness? Now their reasoning, as we'll see here, is a little warped as the reasoning of most lost people is warped. Because without a born-again mind, without the mind of Christ, it's difficult to perceive some of God's ways. Verse 5, if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And Paul says parenthetically, I'm speaking in human terms. The Jew who is arguing with Paul is saying, if my sin gives maximum opportunity for God to demonstrate how righteous he is, then why do you find fault with me? The point they're trying to make, and I know this is meaty, but pay attention. He is saying, in essence, the more unrighteous the criminal is, the more righteous the judge appears. So how can you blame us? How can God blame us? If our righteousness benefits God because it displays his glory and his character more starkly, then how can God judge us with his wrath? Wouldn't that be unfair? And Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm speaking in fallen human logic, and it's almost embarrassing for him even to write it. So he denies their logic. Verse 6, may it never be. And he counters their logic with a question. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? To question God's justice is to attack his competence to judge. All right, objection number four. What about God's glory? He further explains their twisted logic now in verse 7. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory... Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? That is, if through my falsehood and my unfaithfulness, God's truth and faithfulness shines all the more, then how can God possibly judge me? And why not say, verse 8, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim we say, let us do evil that good may come. 
That's the same kind of faulty reasoning people use to get today. They use it against pastors like me. They say, okay, Brogy, you teach salvation totally by the grace of God, that it is free, it is unmerited, it can't be earned, it is just humbly received. What you are teaching, they will say, is that you can just get saved and live however you want. And so it's not unusual for pastors who are grace-preaching pastors to be slandered. And that's what these people were doing concerning Paul. They were saying, let's sin all the more by persisting in our unbelief because God's faithfulness is demonstrated all the more and in that he is glorified. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. Sin never displays the righteousness of God. Sin never displays the glory of God. As a matter of fact, these objections just show how depraved and fallen you are. And so he just says their condemnation is just. They're going to get what they deserve. All right, now very quickly. He steps back now. He's done. He's dealt with the moralizer. He's dealt with the religious man. He's dealt with the pagan hardcore idolatry. Now he takes the whole human race and we see an evaluation of the human race from God. Now follow verse 9. What then, he asks, are we better than they? Now we here refers to the Jews. Some translations will actually interpret it for you. And that's okay because it's a correct interpretation. The problem with doing that is some translations that move from translation to interpretation will sometimes bring their own bias into the text and sometimes interpret things in a way that is not necessarily true. And they're in essence saying you're not smart enough to figure it out for your own, so let us take the place of God for you. Are we, it's just a pronoun, are we, meaning Jews, better than they, meaning non-Jewish people? And Paul says, not at all. Not at all. What do you mean, Paul? You just said in chapter 3 and verse 1 that there was great advantage to being a Jew. Well, again, you need to understand this advantage in terms of privilege, not in terms of favoritism. The Jews, again, were privileged to be keepers of the Scripture, but that did not mean that they could escape the judgment of God. For, he says, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. No exceptions, no preferences, no favorites, no special cases, because the Supreme Court of all creation has spoken. God is saying through his apostles, I don't care if you're white or black or brown or purple. I don't care if you're Asian, African, or European. Everyone has the same problem. The whole human race has a sin problem. We're under sin. The problem is not a racial problem. The problem is, in essence, a sin problem. It's not an ethnic problem. It's a sin problem. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. That's what Paul has been pa painting. And so now he moves from being an attorney to being a doctor. And like a spiritual sur uh, surgeon, he cuts us open. And he goes from our, heads all the way, from our head all the way down to our toes. And he does it by stringing together six Old Testament passages, five from the Psalms and one from the book of Isaiah. In verse 13, you might want to circle or underline the body parts. He speaks of our throats, our tongues, and our lips. If you look at verse 14 here, he writes of our mouths. Uh, in verse 16, of our feet. And finally, in verse 18, of our eyes. He demonstrates from these passages that man is totally depraved. 
Now, unfortunately, the doctrine of depravity, or in more popular terms today, what we call total depravity, is often misunderstood. So what do we mean by total depravity? Does it mean that everyone is just as mean as he can be? No, not at all. You could be meaner if you tried, but please don't try. Has it meant that all human beings are just as wicked and depraved as they could be? No, not all people are drunkards or thieves or murderers or adulterers. But the average person on the street, when they hear total depravity, they think evangelicals are painting a misrepresentation of man, that we're saying that man is as bad as he can be. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Experience itself would show that there are many even lost people who are kind and generous and benevolent towards others. The doctrine of total depravity describes that man is as bad off as he can be. There's a big difference between being as bad as you can be and as being as bad off as you can be. The totality of our depravity uh, refers to the extent of our sin, not to the degree of our sin. And so this is important as you think your way through it. You and I have a germ called sin in us that we inherit as we will see when we come to Romans 5 because of our sin in and with Adam. And Paul is going to describe just how bad we are. As the prophet said, the heart of man is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? There are three people sitting in your seat this morning. The person that you are, the person that you could be if you were totally yielded to the Spirit of God, and the person that you potentially have the capacity to be. If I could take this morning your thoughts, my thoughts that you had from the time you were a youth up to the present day, forget your deeds, just your thoughts, and I could project them on these screens, a lot of you would never want to show your face in this room again. Well, God is going to describe what man is like. God will say in Genesis 8.21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Hitler was not an anomaly. He was not some phenomena. He is what all of us have the capacity in our fallen Adamic nature to do. The Bible says in Psalm 51, you are conceived or you are shaped in iniquity. Jesus said in Matthew 7:11, you, meaning you all, everyone, are evil. That's Jesus' assessment of man. Listen, if you were placed in a certain position in a certain set of circumstances, there's no telling what you would do. I mean, if you said to King David, a man after God's own heart, David, you're going to commit adultery, you're going to commit multiple murder, and then you're going to try to cover it up, he would have said, no, 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 never, never, never would I do that. But he did it. And so to show just how bad humanity is, just how bad our capacity to sin is, Paul in verses 10 to 18 gives us these Old Testament quotations. First, he begins to show that man is sinful in his character. He's sinful in his character. He quotes from Psalm 14, verse 1, there is none righteous, not even one. There's not a righteous person on the face of the earth, Paul says. There's not a person on the face of the earth who is righteous in himself. When a man thinks that he can go to heaven by doing two things, uh, by being good without being born again, he is mistaken in two areas. Number one, he doesn't understand how holy God is. And number two, he doesn't understand how sinful man is. 
But when you, like Isaiah, just get a glimpse of how holy God is, you see how bad off you are. Isaiah the prophet will say, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Your righteous deeds, not your unrighteous deeds, but your righteous deeds. Not your lying, not your adultery, not your thieving, not your murder. But your righteous deeds, your best deeds are like an unclean garment. Then he will say there's none righteous, not even one. And he will say from Psalm 14 and verse 2, there is none who understands. The Bible teaches that by nature our spiritual antenna has been broken. And before we can understand spiritual truth as we ought, God must open our eyes. Put away your philosophy books. You cannot think your way to God. I am so weary of hearing these testimonies of Christians who will stand up and tell me how they reasoned, how they read apologetics books, how they did this, how they did that, and that's why they became a Christian. No, they did not become a Christian that way. Whether you are 6 or 60, the initiative began with God. God took the initiative. God sought us in the deadness of our sin. God, the Holy Spirit, used His Word to open up our depraved, fallen minds. The world looks at man and it says man needs education. God looks at man and He says man needs regeneration. The man looks at, uh, at the, the world looks at man and He says what we need is culture. No, God says what we need is conversion. You must be born two times to enter the kingdom of God. When God sees the world, all He sees is sinners. You say, well, if God sees only sinners, there's vicious sinners and there's good sinners. There's bad sinners and there's respectable sinners. No, Jesus saw the immoral man, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in the same way that he saw Barabbas, the murderer. By nature, man is evil. There is none who understood, understands. There is none who seeks for God, as he says in Psalm 14, 2. When God was in the garden with Adam, he comes into the garden and he asks Adam, Where are you, Adam? God knows everything. That's not for information, of course. Now, you would have thought after Adam sinned, he would have said, Oh, God, where are you? Have mercy on me. But he doesn't. Adam is hiding. Adam is running from God. God takes the initiative. It says, John will write, By this the love of God was manifested in us. It was God to the rescue. God sent His Son into the world so that we might live through him. It's not that we sought God. The initiative didn't begin with us, but God sought us. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When Paul will write to the church at Corinth, he will say, by his doing, by his work, by his initiative, you are in Christ Jesus. Oh, how eternally grateful we ought to be. And so then he will say in verse 12 from Psalm 14, verse 3, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. You say, wait a minute, Paul. There are some people who do good. But you see, your understanding of good in your definition of good is different from God's definition of good. You like fresh fruits, fruit salad? I love it. I love it when my wife takes fresh blueberries and strawberries and raspberries and blackberries and she mixes it all together and maybe pours a little bit of cream on it. Would you like that this morning? 
Well, what if I mix it with dirty, infectious, open sores and I mix it all? You still want it? Probably not. Well, from God's perspective, everything that the unsaved man touches, he contaminates. It's not, again, that man is as wicked as he could be, but he's not as righteous as he should be. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus Christ and he said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, typically, especially a Jewish leader, would never take the word good and apply it to a rabbi or a teacher. They typically reserve that word for God alone. But this man had a distorted view of good, and so Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And if you know the text, this is not a denial of his deity. It's an affirmation that he is Lord. And he's trying to help the rich young ruler who's his own rebel and his own boss to see that Jesus is Lord. But I want you to see that God's definition of good is perfect. And as Paul will argue in the next chapter, in this chapter, we fall short of that. But not only is he sinful in his character, he's sinful in his conversation. The Lord Jesus taught that what's down in the well comes up in the bucket because the mouth speaks that which is in the heart. And so Paul writes their throat is an open grave. When God looks down into your throat, he sees an open grave. You ever look into an open grave? Probably not. But when God looks on the inside of man, there's death down there. There's corruption in there. There's stench in there. It's foul. Spiritually speaking, he goes on to say, with their tongues... They keep deceiving. Liar, liar, pants on fire. That's man's nature. And then he adds from Psalm 140, the poison of apps is under their lips. Man's tongue by nature is venomous. It's been dipped in slime and slander. It attacks. It tears down people. It gossips. Reminds me of the woman who said, girls, I have some good news, but you better get it the first time because I promise not to repeat it. Hmm. Listen, men are just as gossipy as well. Men by nature are gossips as men are. And so God says the poison of abscess under their lips. Then from Psalm 10, he says in verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Some of you listening to me today, your mouth is filled to the brim with cursing and bitterness. And the sad thing is, and it's all over the television and you hear it every week, People who attach God's name or, or God the Son's name to that cursing and that bitterness. When God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Paul goes on beyond our character and our conversation. Notice man is sinful in his conduct. In verses 15 and 16, he quotes from Isaiah 59. Their feet, he says, are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. If you check the very first offspring of Adam and Eve, it was Cain. And Cain was a murderer. And when you go to the final picture of man in the Bible, you see in Revelation 20, man once again making war with God. From the first man to the end of history, man is repeatedly, habitually waging war. You say, but pastor, I've never shed unjust blood, unjustly shed blood. No, but you have the capacity to do it, Paul is saying. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery on their paths. That's the reason we as men love to watch football. That, 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 that's why people love to watch violence. 
Because there's a bloodlust within you. There's a lust to kill. There's a lust to murder. And these two verses in many ways summarize the history of all of humanity. Notice, in the path of peace, they have not known. That's what the United Nations should put on that marquee outside their building. But what do they put? They put Isaiah 2, and they shall hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war as if they are going to accomplish that. No, the Prince of Peace, the context of that verse teaches, when he comes again, he will accomplish it. No man by nature, he is a warrior, he is a murderer. The path of peace they have not known. Jesus said, out of the heart of man comes murder. And then he takes it one step further beyond our character, our conversation, our conduct. He brings it down to contempt. Man is sinful in his contempt. And he quotes now from Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's our generation. This is a world that no longer fears God. We've come out of the closet in every realm and we mock God with our words and in our lifestyles. Man is no longer embarrassed by his sin. No fear of God before their eyes. Now we're coming to it next time, but let me just read one more verse. Paul will say, now we know that whatever the law says, some of these Old Testament passages he just strung together in verses 10 through 18, and really the whole of the Old Testament, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. It is time for the world to stop talking. And according to Revelation 20, at the great white throne judgment, just as this text says, no one will be speaking. When lost men see God in all of His holiness, their mouths will be clamped shut tight. They will have no defense. They will know, yes, we are worthy of your condemnation. Every mouth will be closed. All the world will become accountable to him. I told you years ago about a king who visited one of his slave galley ships. And the king asked one man, why are you here? He said, sire, I'm here of no fault of my own. I was framed and lied about in court. He said, oh, that's tragic. What a shame. He came to another man. And why are you here? He said, your honor, I am like the other man. I am innocent. I was in a crowd and I got caught up in the crowd when your soldiers came to arrest and I was unjustly blamed. Please have mercy on me. Oh, he said, how tragic, what a shame. He came to another and another and another and another and another and they all had the same excuses of innocence and finally he came to one and he said, and why are you here? He said, sire, I'm here because I am a criminal. I am a sinner I've sinned against my God. I've sinned against my king. I've sinned against my people. And I am worthy of being here. The king said, you rascal. What are you doing here in the midst of so many honest and innocent men? Guards, free him. Friend, you defend your innocence before God. And when the chief justice of the supreme court of the universe rules... You will condemn yourself.
Your only hope is to flee to Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that, if you don't have the assurance that if your heart stopped right now, that you would go to heaven, then you need to be saved. Understand God's evaluation in this text. He's saying, man, we are guilty in character. Man, we are guilty in conversation. We're guilty in conduct. We're guilty in our contempt. And only Christ can rescue us. And if he has rescued you, I hope you are growing in your appreciation from what he has rescued you from because he has given you a picture of what is just below the surface of your skin. He has given you a picture of your fallen flesh. Oh, may we be faithful to warn people. It's coming. God's wrath is coming. May we be faithful even today, even this week, to warn someone for Christ's sake. Now, our Father, we thank you, we bless you for so great a salvation in Jesus Christ. We who are by nature objects of wrath, you have rescued, not because of anything in us, but because of what you are, who you are, what you've done, what you've accomplished through your Son. Thank you for the great demonstration of your love and that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. Father, I pray today for someone who is here who is unsure of their salvation. You said today is the day of salvation. May they not live another moment in rebellion against you. May they come and submit to the Lordship of Christ. May they come and call upon his name. For whoever will call on his name will be saved. Will they today, Father, by your Spirit say, Lord Jesus, save me? Would you do that? God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie, the Bible says. Say it, mean it, believe it. Lord Jesus, on the basis of your death and resurrection, save me. Father, we know that when a person truly, genuinely does that, they are forever changed, that they are a new creature in Christ Jesus, and that they will be unashamed to make their decision public. Help someone today to do that. For those of us who have already met you in salvation, oh God, help us to appreciate what you have saved us from, what we so justly deserve. And help us to put no confidence in the flesh. Help us to know that we must walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. For the deeds of the flesh are against the work of the Spirit. Help us in this new week to be faithful with the oracles of God. To shine the spotlight in someone's heart. The Spirit of God might awaken it. We ask it now in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. For a copy of today's study from Romans chapter 3 entitled The Depravity of Man, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and download program ROM11. You can also find this and any of the messages from our series in Romans at the Search the Scriptures app available on the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store. And of course, you can always call and request a CD or DVD copy at 877 877- 787-7478. However you contact us, 
Won't you consider becoming a Search the Scriptures Foundation partner? Foundation partners come alongside STS with a monthly gift of $25 or more. Of course, you can also make a one-time gift of any amount which will go towards purchasing airtime on radio stations around the country. Thank you. Tomorrow, Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And on Monday, we'll begin a look at the righteousness of God. Join us then as we search the Scripture.